I won't read all 21 verses. I'll read that actually a little bit into the sermon. Um, but I first wanted to say, last week I used a uh, phrase that I probably ought not to have used. Um, I said that God had a wicked sense of humor. And now some of you might recognize that as an adverb uh, emphasizing something as being, as a matter of fact, there's a uh, online Miriam's Webster dictionary that, that describes it better than I can. An intensifying adverb meaning to an extreme or impressive degree. And that's how I meant it, obviously. I didn't mean that God's sense of humor is evil. But please forgive me for using a word, especially while we're in this spiritual warfare that would easily be taken out of context. All righty. I will read verses, only verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This series is Spiritual Warfare, and it started two weeks ago with the message, Know Your Enemy. Satan and his demons hate humanity, and they have heavily influenced the world in order to hate uh, Christians specifically. Our own hearts serve as outposts uh, for Satan's demons, sadly. And yet, that's if we let them. Last week's topic was master your weaponry. We wear armor for defense to protect us from temptation and from direct demonic attack. And we use the sword in conjunction with prayer and fasting to fight back against Satan and to take ground away from Satan. Today is engage your allies, and so today we realize, we reflect on the fact that we're not alone in this battle, in this war. Next week, we'll merge all three and talk about embracing your battle. Today's message, allies, engage your allies, correlates with the very first message, know your enemy. And so this message is a counterpoint, and if you look at your uh, one of your handouts, the one with the artistic renderings on it. Know your enemy, the one two weeks ago showed Satan up there, all of these demons, the earth, you in the middle with that old man still in your heart, and then a mixture of demons and humans fallen all around you. And you are vastly outnumbered in this diagram. Yet if you look at today's picture, you see that it is you at the center again, but now you are surrounded by your allies on the earth, in heaven above. There's this depiction that's kind of typical, at least amongst Presbyterians, to show uh, Father God on his throne. You have all these angels surrounding the earth as well as on the earth. So you can see that there's this direct correlation between enemies and allies. Our enemies, we talked about it, are the world, the flesh, and the devil and the devil's henchmen. What evil villain is complete without henchmen? Um, 
I love Despicable Me. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but uh, they've had four movies now, and there's another one coming out this year. And Gru, who would Gru be without his little yellow lozenge-shaped vertical um, one- or two-eyed uh, minions? And I, th I like this movie because it actually um, captures something that we ought to share, and that is that henchmen, especially in comedies, are often viewed as these bumbling fools that really can't get out of their own way. What's funny, though, is over the last 10, 20 years, um, it's often the case that action movies also portray henchmen as these bumbling fools, and uh, not just the campy action movies either. So it's interesting that we see theater going in a direction where it's downplaying these evil. Uh, there, once upon a time, henchmen would last all through the movie, and then only then would the hero knock them out before they can get to the arch enemy. So, loyal service of henchmen is a requirement to be a master villain, and Satan has that in his demons. They are very faithful to him. And yet, in a comparable way, we have allies, and we are nothing without our allies. And I hesitate to say that we are heroes, but I remember reading a business book a few years ago, and this man said that we are kind of heroes in our own minds at times. We will reflect, when we reflect back, we will view our successes. You're not going to put failures on your resume, frankly. You're going to try to get a new job and say what you did well at your last job, not why they fired you if you got fired. So you don't lead with that. You tend to focus on what you can bring to this company, and that makes you a hero. You're a helper. You're going to do thing, good things for them. So who are our allies? Our allies are God, his angels, and the church. Now, where are they deployed? Where, our, where are our allies located? Allies are of far less help to us if they're way in the rear. Sometimes if you're a general, you might be too conservative and you have way too many troops further back to where you can't bring them into the battle. During the Confederate War, um, that was what McClellan would fail to do all the time, and uh, Robert E. Lee knew it. He almost always threw all of his troops into every battle, partly because he didn't have it as many as McClellan, but partly because he wanted to win, and you win by giving it all you have. And some people are just too conservative to attack fully and to have all of their resources employed in trying to defeat an enemy. Our enemies were Satan, demons, the world systems, and our own flesh. There is a corollary with our allies. Satan is our archenemy, and yet God in heaven is our great hero, our great ally. Satan has his demons and God has his angels. Satan has his world systems and God has his church. And Satan has our flesh, a beachhead in our own bodies that still cling to sin. Yet God has put his Holy Spirit in us. And so our allies are very powerful. Now I'll read the rest of Ephesians 3, or all of Ephesians 3. If you can read the handout that is all color-coded, you can 
read from that. That's what I'll read from. I'll orient you to it first. There are six colors highlighted on here. The purple is God, and oftentimes when you see only God, you know that it's most likely the Trinity, but it also could be emphasizing the Father as distinct from Son and Holy Spirit. And then that's in purple, and then Son is in pink, the Holy Spirit is in yellow, the angels of heaven are in orange, the church is highlighted in green, and this is all aspects of the church, all of whom Paul is writing to, these recipients of this letter. And Paul himself is in blue, so the individual. So let me go ahead and read Ephesians 3, 1 to 21. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus." to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him, through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory." For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, Let's dig a little bit deeper in discussing our allies, and we will start in heaven. And so we know that Father God is in heaven. It's from heaven that he rules. The throne of God is there, and he rules all creation from there. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. So first in heaven, we have the Father. And if you're looking at that sheet, there are 16 highlights of 
purple, meaning that they refer either to the Trinity in total or to the Father specifically. And let me highlight just a few of those phrases. It's only God, the Father, in here that has the possessive His. In other words, in verse 5, His holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, His promise in Christ through the gospel which I became a minister. The effective working of His power. And then down farther in verse 15, the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit. So, God the Father, we know that He does not share His glory with any other. Uh, God reigns supreme. The Trinity reigns supreme. And yet, Jesus and the Holy Spirit both honor the Father in the economy, what's called the economy of the Godhead. God the Father chooses what to do in heaven and on earth, and He chooses when it is to be done. Again, looking at verse 3, we see Him say, By revelation He made known. And so God cho chose when to reveal what and to whom. In verse 9, we read of the mystery hidden in God, this mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in and the Gentiles and the Jews becoming one body, indistinguishable. In verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God, the word here for manifold depicts colors. It's like it's this beautiful picture of the wisdom of God and all facets of it being opened up to you, being uh, spread out on the earth, and we're being blessed with this, God's wisdom. In verse 11, eternal purpose, which he accomplished. He already accomplished this. It's being played out. Paul is speaking of it, and yet he's already done it. And everyone, really, is playing catch-up, trying to figure out exactly what God has done. And it, we know that the apostles laid the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone, and that new foundation will prevail on earth. In verse 15, we read that it is Father, Father God, from whom all earthly fathers derive that title. In other words, it's not the reverse. It's God that has the title first. We have the title second. It's us analogous to Him. And in verse 20, what I'd read at the beginning and then again here, that able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And so that could be imagine, above all that we can even imagine God does for us on this earth. So this is our God in heaven, as contrasted with Satan, who got booted out of heaven, as we know. So secondly, in heaven, we know that Jesus is also there. This is where he went when he ascended from the earth. This is where he had come from. He then dwelt on the earth, and now he has returned. And now he remains in both human and divine form. So his two natures are, were not temporary. They're eternal. He has become man 
for our sakes and will remain man for our sakes. Amen. Jesus is woven throughout this text. If you look at the pink down the right side or in the main body, you see that Jesus is just at nine spots throughout this. Um, you can't get very far from a verse that references Christ. Acts 2, starting at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Jesus is not only in heaven, he's actively interested in earth and reigning over the earth. We are said to be with Christ. We reign with him in the heavenlies. We have died through his death. We are risen through his resurrection. And we are said to be with him even now. In verse 11, it is in Christ Jesus our Lord that we have boldness and access. So Christ has earned us access to God. And we enjoy that privilege every time we pray, every time we bow our knee and pray to God. We are entering into his throne room, lifting up our prayers, and all of our sins have been washed away by Christ. Now, thirdly, in heaven, we have the angels. Angels fill heaven. This is where they belong. This is their rightful home. Their rear base is heaven. Their forward base, when they're out on their duties in this war, are on the earth. In Genesis 28, Jacob saw this vision of angels going up this ladder into heaven and coming back down. Jesus, when he refers to angels in the Gospels, usually calls them my father's angels in heaven. And so he just clarifies that that's where they belong. That's where the angels belong. They're with God in heaven. Jesus said he could summon more than 12 legions of angels when he's in the garden, when Peter drew his sword. And so Jesus commands all of these angels. He would pray to the Father. He would send them to him. Angels are said to be strong. In Psalm 103, I read a portion of it earlier. Let me read uh, verses um, 19 to 21. Uh, I'll read 19 through 22 of Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So the angels are powerful, they're strong. We know, we've seen the evidence in the Old Testament of single angels just killing countless humans. We don't know exactly how they do this, but they're very good at it, and so we ought to treat them with respect. I don't see evidence, and this is, when you try to look it up on, uh, on the web, it always just assumes that you're trying to look up praying to angels, and I'm not speaking of that. What I'm speaking of is you see rare occurrences in Scripture of any of the writers 
asking God to have angels intervene on their behalf. In other words, um, the humans seem to just view the angels as entirely within God's realm, even though in the New Testament we read that they are ministering spirits sent to minister to us on earth. Yet you see, rarely do you see humans asking angels for help, asking God to send angels to their aid. There is a reference in Psalm 35, but the angel of the Lord is often a Christophany, it's Jesus um, in, in this form uh, coming as the angel of the Lord. But in Psalm 35, uh, starting at verse 4, we read this, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. This is David praying. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. So he could mean angel of the Lord with a capital A. Oftentimes you'll see it in lowercase as it is here because not all commentators agree whether it is Christ or God that's being referred to. But it is just surprising to me that um, though the angels are there for us, they answer directly to God, and it's almost as if no one wants to ask God uh, f f to have them specifically address this. In other words, it's up to God how he helps us, whether it's through angel or not. When, oh, you know, I've shared this before when I was back preaching on Joshua, but when Joshua sees the angel of the Lord straddling the river and he goes up to him, are you on our side or are you here for the Canaanites? And he says, neither. I'm not here for you. I'm not on your side. And it's a rebuke. It's an implicit rebuke. In other words, the angels serve the Lord. That angel will come and help us or kill us. Whichever God commands him to do, they're obedient to that. And they know that it's being done in a righteous manner, a righteous, holy manner. And so we do rightfully fear the God who commands these millions of angels, and they have this incredible power wield, wielding it over us. So God the Father, God the Son, angels, these are three of our allies in heaven, and then we have the church triumphant in heaven, and they are an ally. In Revelation 6, we read this, starting at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. I'm not saying there are our allies in the sense that we speak directly with them. We don't with angels, typically. We don't ask for their help. We don't with angels, typically. But here, they are seeking justice just as we do on the earth. We want justice as well, and we pray to God for justice. And these martyrs are seeking justice, vengeance for what happened to them. And that, then, will do damage to Satan's kingdom here on earth, and that's a good thing. Also, each of the synoptic gospels refers to the transfiguration of Christ. Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9. 
all three refer to the two men that Jesus met with as Moses and Elijah. Luke, however, shares this additional tidbit. They spoke of his death, which, which he was about to accomplish. So we know that Jesus went up this mountain. He spoke with Moses and Elijah in this transfiguration. God's voice comes from heaven, rebukes Peter for wanting to build a tabernacle, a statue in their honor. And yet, what's amazing about this is what is the purpose of the transfiguration? All the synoptics mention it. And the clue is in Luke that they spoke to Jesus of his imminent death. What needed to be shared at this meeting? We don't know, but it is amazing, don't you think, that the Lord Jesus Christ consulted with Moses and Elijah before going to the cross. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture of the degree to which these perfected humans in heaven can minister to God, can minister to Christ himself. This gives us a glimpse into what it will mean for us to be glorified humans in heaven. I don't think I'll minister directly to Jesus, but it's obvious that these men did, and it's so beautiful. Now Moses, we know, had died because we have this example of him dying and then uh, the angel arguing over it as recorded in Jude, and yet Elijah had been taken to heaven. He's one of the, what, two people in Scripture that did not die a natural death. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, God took him. So, Jesus, while in the flesh on the earth, did not entrust himself to any man, even his 12 apostles. He knew he was going to be betrayed by Judas. He shared everything with all 12 equally, but he explicitly states that he knew the hearts of all men, yet Moses and Elijah had been perfected. They had been glorified and they could meet with him in this miraculous way. So we know we pray only to God. We don't pray to angels or men. And yet, men and angels in heaven are aware of what's happening here. These martyrs in Revelation were aware of what was happening. In 1 Peter 1.12, we know that the angels desire to look into what's happening on earth, especially given what was happening during this period where... God has totally turned things upside down, and this mystery of the gospel is being revealed as Paul's preaching, the, the uh, minister, the apostle to the Gentiles, all of this is coming about, and the angels are amazed by this. And look at your text again. Look at the orange in your text. Start reading at verse, um, verse 9 to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So it is the church that is revealing things to the angels in heaven. It's just a remarkable thing that we are a part of this. We are a part of this body on earth that is doing this, has this uh, great responsibility. 
So now, that was heaven. Let's go down to earth. So again, we have allies here on the earth, and obviously now we have the church militant, what we typically refer to as the church, fellow believers, meeting in assembly such as this, to worship God, to minister not only to God's heart through worship, but to minister to one another. We meet with one another in our homes. There are all the one anothering passages that Scripture brings to bear upon us as individuals, as families. We are ministers in one another's lives, and we ought to do that well. We ought to want to do that. It's not an extra thing that we're doing. That's our job. And to the degree that we are not ministering in one another's lives, we're not doing our job. We're not fighting the war. We're all medics, in a sense. We're soldiers, and yet we all have a medical kit on us, and we use that to administer to one another. Ephesians 3 is so beautiful, these 21 verses. I can't do it justice in one sermon. Um, the Gentiles, as I said, are joining fully into God's body. Fellow heirs of the same body, Paul writes. And yet the church informs the angels of this mystery of the gospel, as I read in verse 10. The church is to glorify God in heaven to all generations. That's what the last verse says. As long as the church is on the earth, as long as there is a militant aspect to the church, we are bringing glory to Christ's body, and it's our job. It's what we're to do. Colossians 1 speaks of us being in the place of Christ, taking persecutions, taking beatings. Because Christ is gone, we remain in order to serve that purpose. The church is Christ's body on earth. In Ephesians 5, a couple chapters later, we see human marriage. And again, the analogy is not that, not that human marriages are the pattern or the standard. It's that Christ's is. So our human marriages are patterned after the love of Christ for his church, for his bride, for his body, right? We know in marriage the two become one. And that's what is happening with Christ and his church. We are his body. He is the head. We are one. Uh, again, just an amazing privilege that we have. And Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. And it is so sad that we live at a time when many people who consider themselves good Christians have abandoned the church. They reject the church as being of no use, of no value, of unworthy of their attendance. And really, them thinking that means the reverse is true. They're the ones that are unworthy, and they're living unworthily. They may be true believers, but God will bring severe rebuke into their lives if they don't get straight with God and God's church. Then we have the angels on earth. And so here, if you look at that diagram, the illustration, you see the angels, some of the angels are on earth. You see the angel is the one holding the sword with the robe. You see them uh, sometimes around the churches, protecting the churches. Angel means messenger. 
They do God's commands. I read that from Psalm 103 earlier. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. And Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews said right in chapter 1 near the end, ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation. All those angels are there on our behalf to help us. And yet, are we availing ourselves of the need of angels? Maybe they do so much and we don't know, but are we really interacting with God and with His church and with the uh, evil world that we live in to a degree that we require angelic protection? Or are we so far away from the front lines in our battle that we are not taking risks at being harmed in this spiritual war? Angels are in only one verse of Ephesians 3, but it is key. It's that number 10, and it's where the church has the responsibility to open the eyes of rulers and principalities in the heavenly places to what God is doing. Now, angels obviously have helped people throughout uh, culture, throughout the Bible. How many books are there about angelic manifestations on this earth? Now, we know we can't believe all of them, but yet I've personally spoken with enough people that believe that an angel aided them at some point in their life that I'm convinced that it probably was an angel. There's really very little explanation for it otherwise. Uh, one was Tom Cotton and his wife Meg. They had that beautiful story that appeared in Reader's Digest long ago about that uh, angel showing up and handing Meg a um, tracheotomy piece on the bus. This girl had trapped her neck on this bus. They're driving. She's not breathing. Her throat is crushed. And Meg knows exactly what she needs. And someone on the bus hands her one. And then she can't find who had handed her this thing. Just amazing. Another one was uh, Shelley, Shelley Roth. Many of you don't know her, but she had an example of an angel most likely saving her daughter from drowning when a bridge collapsed and all these people fell into the water. Biblically, we have many examples. Angels are often used to announce big changes. For instance, even Ishmael, you know, the son of Abraham, an angel announces to Hagar the birth of Ishmael which he is to name him, that he is going to be a leader of many peoples. Samson is announced by an angel. The prophet Samuel is announced by an angel. John the Baptist is announced by an angel. And Jesus is, of course, announced by the angel with the shepherds in the field. Angels saved Lot, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels fed Elijah in the wilderness after he had fled from Jezebel and nearly killed himself. Angels executed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers based on Hezekiah's prayer, humble prayer to God to that end. Angels orchestrated, as when Phil preached through Revelation, every aspect of the war in the Great Tribulation. It's the angels, it's in direct response to the angels and all that they did, that everything on earth took place. Why are we to believe that that isn't true all the time? We are just given this tremendous insight by John into it happening that time. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, again at the end, says that we may entertain angels without knowing it. Now, they could obviously be referring to Abraham, but also they could be referring to other instances. 
So now, we've covered heaven, we've covered earth, and now we go into our hearts. So, in our hearts, and we know this, this is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit to those who are Christ's. It has now been revealed by the Spirit, verse 5 says, strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, verse 16 says, and then verse 20, according to the power that works in us. So we have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. The Holy Spirit is directly said to dwell in us in several places. You remember Paul's famous rhetorical question to the Corinthians. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So that the, temple, the Holy Spirit is within you, therefore you ought not do what you're doing because he was rebuking them. Some of them were living immoral lives with impunity. And then he has a brief command in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. So we know when we're sinning willfully that we're obviously not looking to be led by the Spirit now. We are entirely in the flesh. We're not walking in accordance with the Spirit, nor do we want the Holy Spirit to intervene in the sinful choices we're making. We are cutting ourselves off from the Holy Spirit that lives within us to direct us into good things, to lead us and guide us by His Spirit, and yet we're opting, we're opting to ignore Him, suppress Him. We are supposed to be suppressing, obviously, the old man. Keep that man on the cross. Keep that man from influencing our thoughts and behavior. And yet sometimes we reverse it when we give in. Now, there is also, in verse 17, this direct statement that Christ dwells in us, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we know the Trinity is mysterious, and we don't want to get too hung up on this member of the Trinity doing this or doing that or being here or being there because we know God is omnipresent, but... In the economy of things, we know that the Holy Spirit is said to dwell within us, and yet the Holy Spirit is elsewhere referred to as Christ's Spirit and God's Spirit. They refer to the Spirit as their Spirit, and in a sense, He is. Even though He's His own person, He's their Spirit as well. And so in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I believe that's probably referring to the Spirit dwelling and yet it's at Christ's command that, or request that the Spirit came. And the Spirit is doing this ministration under Christ's authority, who is answering to God for it. So, let's review these. Satan contrasts with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the church triumphant, and the angelic realm in heaven. And so, I believe there we have to say that God is a clear victor. We know because Satan has been ejected from heaven by God. So, that is over. Then, we have these demons contrasted with angels. And we know that the demons have been corrupted and the noetic effects of the fall would affect them just as it does humanity. We know that they're not holy. We know that they're not perfect. Satan was said to be perfect in beauty, perfect in wisdom, but no longer, not as a fallen creature. So as time goes on, he and the demons will continue 
to atrophy as fallen humans do. So again, it says that Satan brought a third of the stars down to the earth with him. So the godly angels outnumber the demons two to one. So again, it would appear that that's clearly a win in our category. We've got these things going for us. But then we get into our hearts, into our flesh, and where we're to walk in accordance with the Spirit and not walk in accordance with the habits of the old man. And there it gets harder, honestly, I think, for most of us, especially if we've just come out of sinful lifestyles and we are still habitually sinning. It's hard to overcome that. Um, God often, though, will transform a person. Certain aspects of your character, I know for me, it was just boom. I was totally different here, here, and here. But I wasn't totally different here, here, and there, which was sad to me. But that's where the sanctification comes in, and that's part of the war. That's part of the armor. That's part of the use of the sword. So that old man must continue to be subjected to the power of the Spirit. And the, the Spirit is very powerful if only we will not quench Him. When we walk in the Spirit, we are victorious. We will be victorious. So now, so far, so good. If, if we were like in a gymnastics competition where we're all lined up and we're all wrestlers and we're facing our opponents, I believe we've won every match. And the old man, that one was close, but I think we won that one too. When it comes down, however, to the systems of the world and the church, I don't know right there. I mean, don't you think that in America, at least, that the systems of the world have grown so powerful and the church has retreated so, so far? It ought not to have. We know this, but it has. We, however are Christians. We're in churches, not just buildings, but we're in these bodies, and God wants us to move forward. And yet, we are comfortable, perhaps too comfortable, moving backwards. And so, that match, I would say in America, we're not doing very well at. We know the church will prevail on earth, and yet we've seen the church fail in nation after nation, that once loved God, that once were sold out to Him in covenant with Him, uh, living by righteous laws, biblically based, and yet we've drifted far from that and very far just in the last 50 years. So again, though, that doesn't mean we can't win the battle. It doesn't mean that we can't win victories in the battle. And it, and it certainly doesn't mean that we judge when a battle is lost or when a battle is won. Ours is but to do and die, right? We're soldiers. That's what soldiers do. You go where they tell you and you fight. That's what we're supposed to do. And so we ought to do that joyfully. We ought to do that courageously. And we ought to be thankful that we have such a powerful God and powerful allies that are at our service. They will help us. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. You ask to fulfill your lusts. So we have to get aligned with what God wants, and then we will be victorious. Now, there is the church aggregate, and then there is the church that you are a part of. We are these, these small bodies. We can be faithful. We can serve the Lord faithfully, and we must do so. 
We don't sit in judgment upon the rest of the churches in this country. That's God's job. But we do have to take seriously our role as a church. Always be comparing ourselves, not to other churches, but to the Word, as was prayed earlier. So, God's plan will prevail. He already won, it says in our text. God has accomplished what it is. He's knit together this church, and this church will be victorious. And we want to be a part of it, a part of the victorious part. We don't want to back up anymore. And if we are beaten, you're only beaten when you stop fighting, right? You just keep getting up. You keep fighting, and you haven't lost. That's what we have to do. We have to keep fighting, not grow cowardly not abandon the lines, not abandon our fellow troops. Now, this one was about our allies, and it's hard, it's been difficult for me to kind of stay away from fighting the battle. And so I'm hoping that I won't forget many of the things that I'd wanted to put in this sermon and the last two that I probably never put down on a note that I want to include in next week's sermon on engaging and embracing our battle. But... Uh, I want you, if you have that sheet with the colors on it, I'd really like you to read that in the coming week, if you would, reflecting on the beauty of those words, the power of those words, um, those um, strongholds that God has already taken and will, um, that are there for us, that are there for us to appeal to and to be benefited by. Please read that in the week ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your presence in this world, for your presence in our hearts. We know that you have vanquished Satan and his angels from heaven, and we thank you. Um, it's amazing how patient you are in uh, carrying out your plan, and yet you do intend to bring us along, and time on this earth will continue until such a time as you declare that all of your elect have now been saved, and then Christ will return. Then we will see evil truly vanquished and judged. We thank you, Lord, for this that we can look forward to. We thank you for the church triumphant in heaven, and we pray that we would uh, seek to uh, honor you and honor their memory on the earth by being faithful to you and fighting our battles without complaint. We ask you now to be in our hearts, to fill us with a desire to do all things to please you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.